0: This evening we're going to direct our attention once more to Paul's letter to the Romans, and tonight I will be reading from chapter 1 beginning at verse 8 and reading through verse 17, Romans 1, 8 through 17, and I ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Again he who has ears to hear the veritable Word of God, let them hear. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, we implore You for Your mercy and grace upon us, that as we give heed to this weighty epistle, so important for our understanding of Your grace and of the way of salvation, that You would condescend once more to our frailty and our weakness opening our eyes and our hearts to the truths that are contained herein, that the same Spirit who inspired these words as they were written now may be present to illumine their meaning to our understanding. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the verses that I've just read to you, Paul is continuing his greetings and his opening comments to the church at Rome before he plunges in to the content of the theological understanding of the gospel that he sets forth throughout this entire epistle. And so he begins by saying, first of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all." The apostle had a heart that was constantly filled with thanksgiving. The word that he used here in the epistle was the word Eucharisto, from which the church derives the term Eucharist, which was a word used to describe the celebration of the Lord's Supper in the primitive Christian church. Because at the heart of the celebration of the Lord's Supper was a profound spirit of thanksgiving for what God had wrought for us in the work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul mentions his spirit of thankfulness for these Roman Christians, and he says, because your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And in fact, the words that he conjoins together here are the word for universe and the word for cosmos. And so he could say, the reputation of your faith has been broadcast and published through the cosmos or through the universe. Now, in a sense, that's hyperbole. But it's just to pause for a moment and pay attention to Paul's use of the term world here. This is one of the many times in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, when the word or words for world are used, and we have a tendency to read into those expressions our contemporary understanding and use of the term world. When we think of the world, we think of the entire planet. We think of all of the continents. All of the people who live in far off places unknown to us personally. When first century people spoke of the world, they were speaking of the known world, they were speaking of basically the Mediterranean world that was in their purview. And when Paul says, I'm rejoicing that your faith is known throughout the world, he's talking in the way people talked at that time, and he's saying that I'm glad that throughout our known world, throughout the Mediterranean world, people everywhere are talking about your faith, which has made an impact. This is one of my hopes for St. Andrews, that people around the world as we know the world beyond the known world, our little world, but through the whole world that people will know of your faith and of your concern for the missionary outreach of the church. And so Paul then follows this with something somewhat unusual and which may be somewhat problematic to you if you pay attention to the teaching of the New Testament, for we are told. For example, by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, that He says, "'Swear not by the heavens or from the earth, but let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay.'" And then also that's repeated in the epistle of James, where James gives such emphasis to telling the truth in simplicity. He says, "'Above all things, let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay.'" and some have taken from these statements that there are never uh, situations in life where it is appropriate to take oaths or vows. The confessional basis of St. Andrew's Church is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it has a whole chapter in it on, entitled Lawful Oaths and Vows, where it rehearses those situations where it is legitimate and indeed something that is delightful to God when people enter into covenant relationships and swear solemn oaths and vows, such as when we contract marriages, when we join the church, as we witnessed this morning, when many people joined St. Andrews for the first time, they took vows before God and before the congregation. And one of the ways we also see that there are appropriate times for the taking of oaths is that because the apostles themselves from time to time swear an oath to guarantee the trustworthiness of what they are saying, as we do in the courtroom when we say we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, that's what Paul does here. He's so eager that the people who receive this epistle understand the depth of passion that he feels in his grateful heart for the remembrance that is published throughout the known world of their faith that he swears a vow. He says, for God is my witness. We will see later, God willing, that this is not the last time in this epistle that the apostle takes such a vow to guarantee the truth of what he's saying. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you." Let me just briefly pause there for a second because the basic purpose of his vow is to assure the Roman Christians that Paul has not just casually desired to come to visit him, but that he has made mention of them constantly in his prayers, and he has been hoping and planning in terms of all that is within him somehow, in some manner, through the will of God to make it to Rome. He had no idea when he wrote these words that the somehow and the manner in the will of God that he finally would make it to Rome was that he would get there by chains as a prisoner of the Roman government. But I also don't want us to jump too hastily over a little comment that he makes in passing here when he says this vow, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son. Now remember last week, earlier on in the first chapter, Paul said that he was separated as an apostle and was called by God to preach the gospel of God. And I reminded you at that time that that phrase, the gospel of God, did not mean the gospel about God, but it is the gospel that is the possession of God. God owns that gospel. He's the one who invents the gospel. He's the one who commissions Paul to teach the gospel. The gospel does not originate with Paul. It originates with God. But now he uses the same structure to talk about the gospel. Instead of talking about the gospel of God, he talks the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So in the same sense, the gospel is the possession of Jesus. But it's not only the possession of Jesus. Jesus is the heart of the content of the gospel. Now let me just again do a little historical reconnaissance. Of the use of this term gospel. We use it so glibly in the church today. I hear preachers all the time, they say, Well, what I do is preach the gospel. And if you listen to them preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you hear very little gospel in what they're preaching. It's just become to mean a nickname for preaching anything, rather than actually having a definitive content, as it does in the New Testament. We all know that the word for gospel is the word A1 Galian. It has that prefix e-u, which prefix comes over into English, all kinds of places. We talk about euphonics, uh, euphonious music, that is, things that sound good. We talk about a eulogy, which is a good word that is pronounced about somebody on the occasion of their uh, funeral service, and so that prefix e-u means something good or pleasant. And the word angelos, or angelion here, is the word for message. Angels are messengers, and angelos is a one who delivers a message. And so right now, as I am preaching to you a message from God, you can certainly consider me an angel, (laughs) albeit in a certain manner. Of disguise, I would grant you that. But this word, a one Galian, which means a good message or good news, has a, a rich background in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the basic meaning of the term gospel was an announcement of a message that was just a good message. If the doctor came to see you, and you were sick, and the doctor examined you and said, it's nothing serious, you're going to get well, that was gospel. That was good news. We remember that in the ancient days when the people would go out to battle, people would wait breathlessly for a report from the battlefield on how the battle went and marathon runners would dash back to the cities to give a report to the outcome. Remember Isaiah, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good tidings. The watchman would be in the watchtower. He would look as far as the eye could see into the distance, and finally he would see the dust moving from the runner who was speeding back to the city to give the report of the battle. And they were trained. They could tell by the way the man's legs were churning whether the news was good news or bad news. If he was doing the survival shuffle, it was an indication that he was coming with a grim report. But if his legs were flying and the dust was being kicked up, that meant good news. And so Isaiah said, how beautiful is it, the feet of the messenger who brings good tidings. So that's the concept of gospel in its most rudimentary sense. But when we come to the New Testament, we find three distinct ways in which this term gospel is used. You're certainly familiar with one of them. We have four books in the New Testament that we call gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luther, and the Gospel of John. Luther? <laughs> so that one of my students in college said the four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called gospels, and we say these biographical portraits of Jesus we call gospels. It's It's a word that has a technical sense to describe a particular form of literature in the New Testament. But before the epistles are written, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, the term gospel is linked with not particularly the person of Jesus, but it is the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist is introduced as one who comes preaching the gospel, and his message is what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in like manner, Jesus, following in the example of John, also preached the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus would say in His parables, the kingdom of God is like unto this, or the kingdom of God is like unto that. And so on the lips of Jesus, the gospel was about this dramatic moment in history where the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited son of David, who would restore the kingdom to the people, the kingdom of God Himself, was now breaking through in time and space, and the good news was the good news of the kingdom. But by the time we get to the epistles, and particularly the Pauline epistles, the term gospel takes on a new shade of understanding. Now it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has a clear content to it at the heart of the gospel is the announcement of who Jesus is and what He accomplished in His lifetime. If you give your testimony to your neighbor and say, you know, I I became a Christian last year, I gave my heart to Jesus, or whatever, you're bearing witness about Jesus, but you're not telling them the gospel, because the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about Jesus, what He did his life of perfect obedience, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon the church. Those are crucial elements of the gospel that we call the objective aspects of the New Testament gospel of Christ. However, in addition to the person and work of Jesus, There is also in the New Testament use of the term gospel the question of how the benefits accomplished by the objective work of Jesus are subjectively appropriated to the believer. So first of all, there is who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and then the question is how that benefits me. And that's why Paul conjoins with the objective accounts of the person and work of Jesus, particularly to the Galatians, that essential to the gospel is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that in preaching the gospel, we preach about Jesus, and we preach about how we are brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is so much under attack in the church today. I I can't stress enough how important it is to get the gospel right and to understand both the objective aspect of the person and work of Jesus and the subjective dimension of how we benefit from that by faith and by faith alone. I just heard of a seminary professor last week who was quoted to me as saying, the doctrine of imputation, that is, by which our sins are transferred to Christ on the cross and by faith his righteousness is transferred to us that this protestant supposedly evangelical professor said that that doctrine of imputation is of human invention and has nothing to do with the gospel i wanted to weep when i heard that but again it just underscored in red once more how delicate the preservation of the gospel is in our day, and how careful the church has to be in every age to guard that precious good news that comes to us from God. And so Paul now speaks of the gospel of his son, and then says that without ceasing he mentions them in his prayers, making the request that he might find a way to get there, as I said. He said, for I long to see you. I've heard about you. I get reports from Rome, but I haven't seen you, haven't met you. And I long, I have this deep yearning, this passion in my soul to meet you face to face. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. And established means not started in the Christian faith, but confirmed built up, edified. That's what he means by established. He said, I want to come to you not for what you can do for me, and I don't want to come to you and lay hands on you so that you can receive one of the charismatic gifts. That's not what he's talking about here. I'm talking about establishing you in confidence and in maturity in your Christian faith. Now let's keep that in mind that this is why Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, and it's why in the providence of God this letter is given to us. It's for our edification, that the faith that has taken root in our souls may be established, that we may grow to maturity and full conformity to the image of Christ. And he makes this comment in passing, I don't want to labor it, but he says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. One of the things that made Paul such a tremendous pastor, as well as a theologian and missionary and evangelist and all the other things he was, you notice when he wrote to the church at Corinth and recalls the experiences that he had with them, he said, and I was with you in your afflictions, in your trials," is that Paul didn't just preach at people or preach to people, but he became involved with them in his heart, in his prayers, in his concern for their well-being, and he wanted to encourage them. And he said, I long to be with you Not just that I can encourage you, but you can encourage me. Is there anybody who who doesn't need to be encouraged? We have pastors here tonight who have come from all over this country, and I think the main reason they come to events like this, final bottom line, is to be encouraged. Because so often the work of the pastorate in our day is an exercise in discouragement. The pastor is fair game for every criticism. Every Sunday afternoon people have roast pastor for dinner, and you know, and pastors are human. And You stand at the door at the end of a service, and a hundred people walk out, or fifty people walk out, and, and uh, forty-nine of them say to you, thank you, pastor, for breaking the Word of God to us today. It ministered to me, and I appreciate that uh, message I heard this morning. Forty-nine people do that and one person comes up and said I can't believe that lousy sermon you preached this morning you know that was awful where did you get off talking like that and so on now if you're a human being when you go home what do you remember the 49 words of encouragement or the one word of discouragement if you're like me the rest of the day it eats away at you that's why pastors have to be encouraged And Paul needed that kind of encouragement. If people are throwing stones at you everywhere you go, it's nice to have somebody give you a word of encouragement from time to time. And he said, I long to come to Rome that I can encourage you and that you can encourage me. He said, now again, I don't want you to be unaware of these things. There are many times I've planned to come to you, but I've been hindered, providentially hindered until now that I might have fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles." Now notice that Paul refers to the Roman Christians as basically Gentiles. I'm sure that there were Jewish converts mixed in amongst the Gentiles there, but we know also that the Christian Jews had been kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius a little earlier than this epistle was written, and maybe basically all that was left were Gentiles, but still. The Roman community was made up more of Gentiles than of Jewish believers. But he says, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Wow. The language that he uses here. Notice he doesn't say, I'm a debtor to the Jew and to the Greek. Not at this point. He's saying, I'm a debtor to the Greek and to the barbarian. Now when he talks about the Greek here, he's talking about the highly cultured, civilized, intellectual, elite of the ancient culture as distinguished from the rest of the Gentiles who were pagan barbarians. And he says, but I'm in debt both to the Greek, the high-minded, and to the barbarian. What does he mean? He's not talking here about a pecuniary obligation or debt. It's not that he owes money to both sides. But he felt a moral debt. He was burdened by an obligation that went with his office as an apostle. Remember, he was the one who was set apart to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he said, I'm spending my whole life discharging This obligation that I owe, ultimately it's the debt he owes to God. It's the debt he owes to Christ. But yet at the same time, he's transferring that indebtedness, that obligation to the people who need to hear the gospel. He says, as long as I'm alive, I can't pay that debt because I owe my life to every person that I meet, to the wise, the unwise. He's putting them all together to say, everyone I meet, I meet as one who owes my fellow person the message of the gospel. I talked to a member of our church last Sunday who said to me after the service, R.C., I just want to know. I want you to know something. He said, I've decided to dedicate the rest of my life to serving Jesus. You know, I've heard that many times from people, but it never gets boring. It never gets stale to hear somebody with a fervency of heart and soul say, you know, I'm going to quit fooling around. The rest of my life is going to be devoted to the service of Jesus Christ. That should be the heartbeat of every believer. So he says, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Again, he's reaching down into his soul to speak of the depth of his own passion. He says, as much as is in me every fiber of my being is ready to preach the gospel to you. I can't wait to get there. Well, I made mention in one of the sermons uh, that, I don't know whether it was this morning, probably was it so long ago, how that I longed, I had this goal to be a seminary professor by the time I was 50. That was this morning, I told you that. And then when I was 29, I got the job and and I was so bored. And, and the seminary was in downtown Philadelphia on the campus of Temple University. And I used to take the train into town for a while and get off at 30th Street Station and walk down Broad Street to the seminary. And it was like pulling teeth. I can remember walking down there just dreading those classes. And I used to have these pangs of conscience. I would say, you know, I should be thrilled to have the opportunity to teach these things to these young men training for the ministry. Why do I see it as an unpleasant burden? Some of you guys are in the ministry, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you can't stand to get up on Sunday morning and you say, I wish I could sleep in there, so half my congregation is, but uh, I can't. He says, I'll, I'll go there and they can sleep while I'm preaching. and. Uh, catch up on their, their naps, but, but we have to be there, and we don't always feel like being there. But it should be for the pastor, it should be like Paul, that as much as is in me, I can't wait to come to you and to carry on this ministry and to preach this gospel to you. Why? Why does he say it? Well, he answers that question. Let's know what he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." And he says why in a moment, but let's just listen to this statement, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Have you ever been ashamed of being a Christian? Have you ever tried to duck the hostility of this world, the scorn that is heaped upon those? who were known as disciples of Christ in a culture that is hostile to Christianity. If you think our culture is hostile to the gospel, think of the culture that Paul was dealing with in the first century. He says, I'm not ashamed. I glory in it. Let him who boasts, let him boast of the Lord. There's nothing that, that turns his crank more than to be known as a Christian, no shame. Jesus warned us, didn't He? If you're ashamed of Me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before My Father. But that's a real crunch for many Christians. They want to be Secret Service Christians, or what I call Clairol Christians. Only their hairdresser knows for sure whether they're a Christian. They don't want to be known as being holier than thou. I mean, if if you say one word to your friends about Christ, you'll be accused of trying to shove the gospel down their throat. That's the nature of the beast. And so we get rebuffed enough times that pretty soon we become embarrassed about our faith. Not the apostle. He says, as much as is in me, I can't wait to get the and I'll tell you why. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now again, why is he not ashamed? And listen to this, because this is dynamite, literally. Dunamis is the Greek word from which we get the dynamite. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. This summer I had the opportunity to speak at the Founders Group at a special breakfast at the Southern Baptist Convention, and on that occasion I borrowed a sermon from Martin Luther. I let the people know that that's what I did. Some of you may even have been there, and if I repeat that, I hope you'll forgive me, I was taken by the fact that when Luther preached his last sermon on February the 15th, 1546, in his hometown of Eisleben, he made these observations that I'm going to communicate to you, God willing, in just a moment. Luther had been summoned from Wittenberg, where he was a professor there, back to his hometown of Eisleben because a serious rift had developed between two nobles and they hoped that if Luther would come and mediate the debate and the dispute, that peace would come back to the city. And so Luther agreed to make the arduous journey there to Eisleben. The last time I was in Isleben, I was able to stand up in that pulpit where he preached that final sermon of his life. He died two days after he preached this sermon. And what he was concerned about in his last sermon was the gospel. He had warned the people earlier that any time that the gospel is preached accurately and passionately, it will bring conflict, and people flee from conflict. And so every generation will tend to water down the gospel, will tend to hide the gospel, and let it be eclipsed into darkness as it had been for the centuries before the Reformation. And even by the end of Luther's life, he was seeing that taking place already in Germany. And listen to what he says, in times past, we would have run to the ends of the world if we had known of a place where we could hear God speak. Wouldn't you? If you knew that God were going to give utterance someplace, wouldn't you pay any price to go and hear God? But now that we hear it every day in sermons, indeed now that books are full of it, we do not see this happening. You hear the gospel at the home in your house, father and mother children sing and speak of it, the preacher speaks of it in the parish church, you ought to lift up your hands and rejoice that we've been given the honor of hearing God speaking to us through His Word. Oh, the people say, what is that? After all, there's preaching every day, often many times every day, so that we soon grow weary of it. What do we get out of it? ever heard that? You know, well, I go to church, but I don't get much out of it. And the people that teach us how to grow churches tell us, well, we really have to be sensitive to what people want. We have to scratch them where they itch, or they won't get anything out of it, and they won't come back. And so we have to cast our sermons and our messages not on the basis of what the Word of God declares but on the felt needs of the people. Early on in Ligonier Ministries we had a consultant come in and he said, "What are you trying, what are you selling? The holiness of God? Nobody cares about the holiness of God. If you want this ministry to grow, you've got to minister to the felt needs of people. And I said, no, I don't. Because what I preach and teach is not determined by what the people want to hear. I have a boss that I have to uh, answer to, and God makes it a priority for people to understand His holy character. And the people may not feel the need of that, but there's nothing they need more desperately than to have their minds exploded in their understanding of who God is. So God forbid that we listen to Madison Avenue and those who tell us. To become hucksters, and this is what Luther's complaining about. He says the people say, "What's that? What do we get out of it?" All right, Luther said, "Go ahead, dear brother. If you don't want God to speak to you every day at home in your house and in your parish church, then be wise and look for something else." In Trier is our Lord God's coat. In Achan there are Joseph's pants and our blessed lady's chemise. Go there and squander your money. Buy indulgences and the pope's second-hand junk. Aren't we stupid, he says, and crazy, blinded, possessed by the devil? There sits the decoy duck in Rome with his bag of tricks, luring to himself the whole world with money and goods, and all the while anybody can go to baptism, the sacrament, and the pulpit." What? Baptism? The Lord's Supper? The Word of God? No. Joseph's pants. That's what does it. He says, these people in their madness are going all over Germany to find the nearest collection of relics. A piece of straw from the crib of Jesus, milk from the breast of His mother Mary, part of the beard of John the Baptist. That's what the church was selling. And why did people buy it? What did they want, folks? What do people want today when they go to the person who promises healing and slays them in the Spirit. What are they looking for? I can tell you what they're looking for. They're looking for power. They want a Christian experience that is powerful. They want power to manipulate their own environment. That's the great goal of the New Age movement, to be able to bend spoons with your mind. Only one is omnipotent, and it's the Lord God. And the Lord God has power to spare. He doesn't need Joseph's pants. He doesn't even need the gospel. Yet it has pleased the Lord God omnipotent to invest His power not in Joseph's pants, or in the preacher's ability to slay somebody in the Spirit, but the power is invested in the gospel. There is no program known to man that has the power that the gospel has. It is the Word of God that He has promised that He will not allow to return unto him void. That's the method, the foolishness of preaching that he's chosen to save the world. As Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I want to preach the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God and the salvation, not the power of the preacher's eloquence, not the power of the preacher's education, it's the power of God. That's what we need the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith." Yes, I'm looking at the clock, and how can I only have six minutes left when I've just now finally come to the theme of the entire epistle? My wife says, sometimes you take a long time to get started, and this is one of them. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I mentioned last week that this was the verse that God the Holy Spirit used to awaken Luther as he was preparing his lectures on the book of Romans when he glanced at a manuscript from St. Augustine where Augustine read this text, and it says here when it speaks of the righteousness of God, Augustine said in his note, this is not the righteousness by which God Himself is righteous, but it is that righteousness that God provides for people who don't have any righteousness. It's that righteousness that He makes available by free grace to all who believe. What Luther called the alien righteousness, the righteousness that is not our own, but it is somebody else's righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. And this Luther who had sought every means that he knew in the monastery to satisfy the demands of God's law and never had peace, who would spend three, four hours in the confessional every day confessing the sins from the last day until his confessors were saying, Brother Martin." If you have something to confess, make it something serious. You come to us, and you talk about coveting Brother Andrew's extra piece of bread from last night's meal. I mean, how much trouble can you get in in a monastery in twenty-four hours that you have to spend three and four hours in the confessional? But Luther was an expert in the law of God. And every day when he looked in the mirror of the law of God and examined his life against the mirror of God's righteousness. He was in terror. We're not because we've blocked out the view of God's righteousness, and we judge ourselves on a curve by ourselves and among ourselves. We never judge ourselves according to the standard of God's perfection. If we ever did, we would be as tormented as Martin Luther was in the monastery. And so he was moved on one occasion to say, you ask me if I love God? Love God sometimes. I hate Him. I see Christ simply as an angry judge who comes to me with His law to destroy me. He said, and all of a sudden, he understood another righteousness. A righteousness that was the free gift of God to all who put their trust in Christ. A righteousness that would avail to satisfy all of the demands of God's law. Luther said, when I saw that, the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. No wonder that man stood against kings and officials of the church who would refuse to compromise because once he tasted the gospel of Jesus Christ, once he was delivered from the pangs and torment of the law, nobody was going to take it from him. I was involved in this International Council on Biblical Inerrancy many years ago, a ten-year initiative to defend the doctrine of Scripture, and I was the president of that council. And I was asked to go to a seminary and, and meet with their whole faculty. Because the faculty had departed from that view, and and I had this discussion behind closed doors for about three hours, and afterwards I was walking to my car in the parking lot, and the dean was with me. And he said, I just don't understand you, R.C. He says, What do you care so deeply that the Bible is inerrant? What difference does it make? What difference does it make? I said, my life was saved by this Word. There is nothing more precious to my soul than every word that's found on this page. How can you be the dean of a theological seminary and ask me, what difference does it make? It's the Word of God. So I understood the sense of liberation that Luther experienced from reading that text. This is the thematic verse for the entire epistle. Everything that comes after it will be an explanation of this one line, for in it the righteousness of God, the word there, dukiosune, is the word that is used for justification in the New Testament. And we're going to be seeing that word again and again as we pour over this manuscript to the Romans. And finally, Paul says. And it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith." Three times that verse is quoted in the New Testament. Here it's in Galatians, it's in Hebrews chapter 10. All three times the text that is quoted goes back to the Old Testament book of the prophet Habakkuk briefly. That gives me the license to take a couple more minutes. Habakkuk was deeply distressed because the people of God were being invaded by pagans and were triumphing. And he was confused. He said, God, you're too holy to even look at iniquity. How can you allow this thing to happen to your own people? And you remember, he stood in his watchtower, set himself on the rampart. And he said, I'm going to watch to see what God will answer me, and what I will answer when I'm corrected. Then the Lord answered me, Habakkuk writes, and he said, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. It's not yet, Habakkuk, but at the end it will speak. It will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it." Ladies and gentlemen, do you ever feel that tension with the Word of God, with the promises of God that they don't show up when you want them all the time? And and, and you go and you cry and you say, God, where are You in this? Why aren't You fulfilling the promises that You gave to our fathers? And yet the God that we worship is a promise-keeping God. And this was the complaint of Habakkuk, and God says to him, Habakkuk, I have said this for an appointed time. My words do not lie. I will do what I said I will do. Have a little patience. Wait. It may tarry, but if it tarries, wait for it. And then he goes on to say, because it will surely come. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith." That is the righteous person, righteous in the sight of God, not by his own righteousness. We've already established that. But the righteous lives by trust. Jesus in the Judean wilderness, under the unbridled assault of Satan, lonely, hungry, Satan says, take these stones and make them bread. I can't do that. Don't you understand, Satan, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. I've said to the people of St. Andrews really a hundred times, anybody can believe in God. What it means to be a Christian is to believe God, to trust Him when He speaks. And that does not require a leap of faith. That does not require a crucifixion of the intellect. It requires a crucifixion of the pride because there is no one ever more trustworthy than God. Why wouldn't you trust God? When we don't trust Him, it's because we transfer to Him our own corrupt qualities. God doesn't have any of those corrupt qualities. You can trust Him with your life. And that's the theme of this book, the just shall live by faith. And from that vantage point, Paul opens up the depths and the riches of the whole gospel for the people of God. Let us pray. Oh Father, forgive us for our unbelief, our lack of trust, for our shame and embarrassment of the gospel, for looking every place but the gospel to find Your power. Thank You for this Word that we've looked at tonight, that we may be encouraged as the Roman Christians were encouraged by it. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.